What I want to do is simply pause and have a word of prayer together. Now, our Father, what we want to do is to look very carefully at your word. You are the God who's spoken. You have a way of taking all of eternity and breaking into time. Changeless truths for changing times. And revolves around your, your messianic plan, Jesus Christ. Coming into this world to die for our sins. And your word allows us to see the scope, the breadth, as well as the personal nature of salvation. You've got a way of connecting Christmas to Good Friday and helping us to understand the significance of Jesus Christ's entrance into this world, the story of Christmas. We want to see this in terms of the big picture. We want to understand what you're doing, but we have to understand it in light of what you've already revealed in your word. So take us to your word now and allow us to understand it. So in the minutes that you give us now to be together, it's our prayer once again that you would warm these hearts and that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Come here now, Father, to see Jesus and, and him only. We're praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. And during the Christmas season, it's always a, a tremendous privilege, opportunity to listen to portions of Handel's Messiah. We're told that in the time in which he was writing this Messiah, he had lost his health. His right side was paralyzed. Money was gone. But as the Apostle John would put it, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Biographer tells us that one bitterly cold winter of 1741, Handel received a package in his lodging. It contained a text made up of scriptures from the Old Testament into the New woven together to talk about the way in which Jesus Christ entered into this world. Passages such as, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. Another passage, A virgin shall conceive, bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Handel continued excitedly to read from the Older Testament. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrow. From Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And again, King of kings and Lord of lords. Alleluia! Exclamation point. 
Well, as his friend had delivered him, the way in which these passages are linked together, pointing towards Jesus. We're told that Hondo rushed to the piano, pencil in hand, and began to compose the music that you and I know as the Messiah. Get this. For two weeks, the biographer goes on to say, he, quote, labored incessantly, he saw no one, and refused food and sleep. When at last he finished the great oratorio, and tears were streaming down his face, with exclamation point, he said, I did think I did see all heaven before me. on the great God himself. Our Advent series allows us to see how the Old Testament passages link together and point us in direction of the one known as the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we explored very carefully what you and I might describe as the promised seedbed of the Messiah. Because in Genesis chapter 3.15, our pivotal verse of last week, God, speaking to the evil one, said, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Get this. And between... Your offspring, or in the Hebrew, your seed, and her offspring, or seed. Now, you could hold up one seed, or you could hold up a collection of seed, but all encapsulated in that one word, seed. So God simultaneously is dealing with all the descendants of Abram, the offspring, while simultaneously pointing towards the ultimate representative of Abram's offspring, the promised one, whom Handel spoke of as the Messiah. God is so precise in his usage of words he used the word seed so it could be understood as both the singular and the plural. It's known as a collective singular. Everything is pointing, generation by generation, of Abraham's descendants towards the ultimate descendant of Abraham, Jesus. And as Jesus said to his critics, and before Abraham was, I am, which would have been in that time period, Yahweh, before Abraham was, Yahweh, is what Jesus was saying. No wonder they picked up stones wanting to stone him but we're getting ahead of ourselves. 
What I want to do with you now is to take this promise that we saw in its seedbed last week of Genesis 3.15, allow it to continue to take root and grow. And what we're going to do is to notice two significant elements that are coming out of this messianic plan that initially was established in Genesis 3.15, but is making its way now through Genesis chapter 9, which you can see in our handout this morning. Another seed promise was made to the line of Shem, that this one, who would be a male coming from the woman, would furthermore, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 27, come from the line of Shem. In other words, he would be a Shemite, or as we would say this morning, a Semite. Now, you reach this point where we begin to think seriously about the way in which the elements of this messianic plan are unfolding. And there are two significant elements, and the first flows out of verse 27 to 32, 11th chapter. We're going to pen it like this. Then number one, in God's messianic plan, I want you to first note with me the preparations here being made by God. The preparations being made here by God. Check it out. Where in verse 27, it begins with the phrase, now these are the generations of Terah. Now, when you see these are the generations of, if you're using a different translation, it will say this is the account of. In other words, what Moses has done in Genesis is that he has structured the book of Genesis around that phrase, this is the account of, or these are the generations of, so we can see where we are at in the, in, in the big picture of things. Terahs of the line of Shem. We are dealing here with Semites. And so we are told here, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And as you ponder that and pause there, I want you to put off to the side of that passage of Scripture, Joshua chapter 24, verse 2. Your main heading at this point, your main element here, is that we're dealing with the preparations that God makes. What I want you to understand here is that Terah is not a Christian. Terah has not put his faith and trust in Messiah to come. As a matter of fact, Terah is polytheistic, and as Joshua would have put it in chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. In other words, God is at work using an unbeliever as the means of inching this family towards the promised land so that Abram can receive the next word from God. Don't underestimate how God goes about doing his work where he will do preparatory work in ways in which you and I would by nature be prone to overlook. Don't overlook the terror strategies of this world. Maybe you've got some in your, in your workplace. And so now he gathers together these folk and 
Haran fathered Lot, and already we can see some major complications forming in the early stages of God's strategy for Messiah. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ere the Chaldeans. Ere, that is probably like the New York City of the Chaldeans. It's a promising setting that will not produce the promised one. But it is a prosperous setting, a productive setting. Do you stay there and develop your 401k? Or do you move ahead? Watch what God's doing. Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Ish. Now, we said one of the significant challenges that we see here in the way in which God is going about preparing the way for Messiah is that he's using a terror, a polytheistic one, as part of his strategy. Notice the next challenge we're facing. We are told here, now Sarai was barren. And then to reiterate and rephrase, she had no child. Now, hadn't we been told in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and between your offspring and her offspring, uh, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. In other words, this promise requires, it requires descendants. It requires an ongoing seed, generation by generation. Hadn't God said, furthermore, that this promised one would be of the seed of Shem, a Semite? we got a problem on our hands. An obstacle to God's promised strategy. Say, rise barren. Now then, we've got a father who's polytheistic and a wife who's barren, and God is supposed to do something with this challenge? Are you facing challenges this morning? Have you considered the sufficiency of the sovereign one in whatever it is you're facing? Or as that old spiritual put it, got any rivers you think are in, uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He does things others cannot do. Nothing is impossible with God. We're told in Jeremiah 32, verse 17 and 27. Reiterated in Luke chapter 1, and again in chapter 18. So now the secular pessimist looks at this and says, okay, you got yourself a polytheistic father, and you've got yourself a wife who at this point can't conceive, and you're getting up in years. The clock is ticking, biologically speaking. How can this, how can this plan happen? You can almost sense the negativity. You hear about the farmer who is continuously optimistic, had a neighbor who was just the opposite, grim, gloomy type, you know the kind. Every morning sighs. Happy, optimistic farmer sees the sun coming out and shining. He says, look at that beautiful sun. 
clear sky. Negative neighbor responds, yeah, it's probably going to scorch the crops. And then when clouds would appear over the horizon, the farmer, the optimist would see this great, God's giving our corn a drink today. Only to hear the negativists say, uh-huh, but if it doesn't stop for long, it's going to flood and wash out everything. So one day the optimist decided he was going to put his pessimist friend to the text test and brought the smartest, most expensive bird dog you can find. Train him to do things no other dog on earth can do. Impossible feats. Astound everybody. Invited the pessimists to go duck hunting with him. Sat in the boat, hid in the duck blind. Ducks came out, both men fired, several ducks fell. And then the optimist said, go get him. And his dog leaped out and walked on water and got the ducks. And the optimist turned to the pessimist and said, what do you think of that? And the pessimist frowned and said, can't swim, can he? Sometimes people are looking at situations of life and saying, impossible, can't happen. Only to hear the scriptures shout out to us, but nothing is impossible with God. So now, we're in the preparatory stage at this point. You've got to scrape the paint off the old paint before you repaint. There's a scraping happening here. It doesn't look pretty. You've got Tara, you see, who is a polytheist, unbeliever, secularist, and you've got Sarai. And how are we going to connect this to Genesis 3.15 and the promised one that comes of seed, collective singular? Well, you read on. And you process what's unfolding here. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. Did you get that? Terah took them towards Canaan. Abram didn't. But then again, Abram's not a believer at this point either, is he? And so now what God is doing, unannounced, but in the silence of sovereignty, unfolding his strategy, they make their way forward through the circumstances of life. Don't underestimate the way God goes about sovereignly working out details that you nor I can fully comprehend. He uses a Caesar Augustus to issue a census to get everybody scurrying to their hometowns so that Joseph and Mary will make their way to Bethlehem and fulfill the promise in Micah chapter 5 of verse 2 that he would be born in Bethlehem. And so now, of all people, it's Terah, not Abram, leading them toward the promised land. When lo and behold, we are told here they settled there Haran, likewise, was a, a major metropolitan setting for commerce, like a London. And then something happens. 
the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Another disappointment. So now we've got Terah, polytheist, leading, an unbeliever, not a believer leading. We've got Sarai, who's bare, and we've got Genesis 3.15 promising the seed in the background of all of this. We've got commercial settings, which would be tempting for Abram and family to just settle down, not enter into Canaan. And fourthly, we've got now a father who's just passed away, and pastorally speaking, so many times I find that when a loved one so close to you dies, the proneness is to not distance oneself too far from where the burial site is. Now we've got a sense of loss. When I was working on my master's degree, Dr. Warren Benson came up to me, and he was a bit teary-eyed, and he said, Gary. I said, what's wrong, Warren? And he said, I want to tell you something. One of your closest friends has just died in a car crash. And now your mind's swirling, and who is it? He said, Doug Beers. And now, Doug had been vice president of my, our student body at Wheaton, been kind of like my right-hand man. We were close. And um, takes your breath away. His father, Gil Beers, was the editor of Christianity Today. He wrote a very powerful book subsequent to his son's death. Turn your hurts into healing. He would love our grief share ministry here. And as he grappled with the unexpected loss, wrote, life is kind of like that. We get on a roll, up or down, and it's tough to reverse the trend. When things start going wrong, there seems to be no let up. When good things start to happen, it seems easy to succeed. Doug's death started a roll down for us with a series of pits toward a greater pit. You may now be on a downward roll, and you don't know what to do about it. Is that some of you? So what Gil Beers does here, Dr. Beers offers, is a series in his book of what we'll call Life Changers. He writes, perhaps the life changers which helped us will also help you. Because life is never static, so you have two options in dealing with a life-weakening situation. Let us send you into a downward spiral of increasing weakness. Or turn your weakness into a strength. Then he writes, life changer number one. Life is at its best an adventure. To live the adventure, you must risk getting hurt. For only through the adventure of living will you grow strong. Abram, how you doing? Still up for the adventure of living? 
step back. Okay. Tara, the polytheistic secularist, has led them this far. Sarai is barren. Ur is enticing a metropolis with tremendous financial opportunities. Tara dies. Do we put some roots down here? All of this stuff that I've identified, four significant aspects of preparation, are woven into the strategy that God is using here to bring Messiah into this world. It's all part of the growth within the seedbed of messianic promise. In God's messianic plan, note first of all the preparations made by God, and then ask yourself, in my own orbit, am I dealing with those that are highly secularist? In my own orbit, am I dealing with things that, for lack of a better phrase, we just don't see the potential for life here? Are you dealing with a sense of the temptations of materialism, or are you dealing with the realm of death, all of which might cause you to say, I'm done with the adventure of life. I just want to cope. Well, what I want you to see is that all of that is preparation for promise. Because in 27 to 32 of the 11th chapter, in God's messianic plan, you note the preparations being made by God, and you link it to even what we talked about with Hondo in the opening illustration, that he had lost health, he had lost his ability to utilize his right side, paralyzed, his income was gone, and yet... Messiah, the Messiah is penned. Ready for the second element? Because number two in God's messianic plan, I want you to furthermore note with me the promise made by God. And now link with me the preparations that we identified, and there were four preparations. And tie it now to the promise made by God that unfolds beginning in verse 1. Where now it reads, now, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land which I will show you. Note the word now. He allowed Abram to be exposed to all these challenges as means of preparation. The word now explodes in front of his life experience when the natural tendency is to camp out there in Haran. But notice what comes next. Now the Lord said, that is the covenantal relational personal name for God. Notice it doesn't read, now Abram said, and once again, just as we noticed last week in the Garden of Eden, God takes the initiative with communication. And here again now, explodes within his life experience. The Lord said to Abram, and notice the word go. Right when you think the wind has left your sail, 
house. Go. James Michener in Chesapeake writes, A ship like a human being moves best when it is slightly athwart the wind, when it has to keep its sails tight and attend to its course. Ships like people do poorly when the wind is directly behind, pushing them sloppily on their way so that no care is required in steering or in the management of sails. Where the wind seems favorable, for it blows in the direction one is heading, but actually it is destructive because it induces a relaxation and tension and skill. What is needed is a wind slightly opposed to the ship, slightly. For then tension can be maintained, and juices can flow, and ideas can germinate. For ships, like people, respond to a challenge. Abram, ready to respond to the challenge? Go. Now notice there's a from and a to. God has a way of doing that. Go from and go to. The from, notice the personal attachments. Go from your country, see the your, and your kindred, see the your, and your father's house, three yours. Pause. Ask yourself, and what personal attachments do I have that keep me from doing what God has called me to do? And what personal attachments keep me from obeying God? Attachments can clutter. So now, God is about to declutter. He's got a way of doing that, you see. Go. Here's your T.O. To the land that I will show you. Notice he said, I will show you. In other words, he doesn't lay it all out at once. In other words, God provides sufficient information. What God does not do is to provide exhaustive information. We've said it before. We'll say it again. God reveals enough to make our faith intelligent. God conceals enough to allow our faith to grow. And so now, what you and I find here is that Abram is going to have to begin to process what this is all about at 75 years of age. And at 75 years of age, what we find here now is that God is about to start to deliver a series of phrases within this promise that astound. Now remember, Sarai is unable to bear children. But notice what God is about to say to Abram. I will make of you. A great nation. He does not say, I will make for you, in other words, out of some other material, a great nation. Uh -uh. 
he's going to utilize this elderly man and this woman who cannot conceive. And you begin to process then the significance of this as it relates to, got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible, and he does things others cannot do. And now you're asking, and how does this relate to the messianic plan? And how does this prepare a Mary and a Joseph that if God can do the impossible with a Sarai, he can do the impossible with a Mary? And if you consider the fertility issues within the book of Genesis and how God uses the offspring strategy generation by generation rooted in the Genesis 3.15 passage as part of his messianic plan and how preparation and promise wed. He's saying, wait a second, I need seed. I'll make of you a great nation. But God's not done there yet. He then says, and I will bless you, which is used in the opening sections of the book of Genesis. Didn't Adam and Eve hear the phrase, he blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply? But he's not done yet. And then adds, thirdly, and make your name great. You see the phrases coming at you? I will make of you a great nation, number one. I will bless you, number two. And thirdly, make your name great. Now what you want to do is link this to what you find in chapter 11, verse 4, where at the Tower of Babel, what was the incentive of the building constructors? They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. But that's works. And compare that now to what God is saying to Abram in verse 2. And I'll make your name great. That's grace. And the collision of works versus grace is unfolding in front of your very eyes here at this point. And then another clause. so that you will be a blessing. Now he's stating the purpose. There's a reason for this. Abram, you're not to be a reservoir of grace. Abram, you're to be a channel of grace, despite all the challenges in this preparatory process. I know you're tired. I know the years have taken the toll on you. But you're called to be a channel, not a reservoir. How about you? So that you will be a blessing. And now he continues on, and you can see the history of the Jews in the next phrase. And I will bless those who bless you. Let that lead up to the cross of Jesus Christ. As you also read, And him who dishonors you I will curse, 
And now the very powerful Great Commission, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Man, long before Matthew 28 and Jesus delivering the Great Commission, you've got the Lord talking to Abram at this point about the Great Commission, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And if you check out chapter 10 of Genesis, you'll see the table of the nations and how the globe is expanding with a population base that takes your breath away. And it's a passive verb here that God's utilizing. And so now he's got five clauses here. You see, there are five usages of the word bless here in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 12 that connect with the five usages of the word bless in all of Genesis chapter 1 to 11. Astounding. See how balanced all this is? This is thought through. The five and five. But the commentator Paul picks up on it in Galatians 3, 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before unto Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. This is the gospel we just saw there in verses 2 and 3. This is global missions in verses 2 and 3. This is you and me called to be channels, not reservoirs. Even taking the challenging experiences of preparatory work, you don't waste them. You invest them. And you use them for others. Life's a journey, as Gil Beers would point out. It's an adventure. You're going to camp out or you're going to go and pursue God. I love what comes next. Verse 4. So Abram went Underline it in your Bible. As the Lord had told him. He's ready for the adventure. He's going to start walking in this path. But you get this impression here that all that preparation links you to the promise of Jesus. Because... You just saw five clauses in verses 2 and 3 alone, and five blessings in 2 and 3 that connect to the five blessings of chapters 1 through 11. What do you do, Abram? Going to be sedentary? You're going to walk with Jesus. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. When's the last time you did something because you simply wanted to obey God? But here's the complicating factor. And Lot went with him. Now, if you know Genesis enough, you know that that's a future challenge. And there are always a series of vulnerabilities in the midst of our obedience to the Lord. It's just a given. We live in a fallen world. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. But now we truck along here. Abram took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his brother's son, all their possessions they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go, there's that word again, to the land of Canaan. 
And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. What is fascinating to me is that in the Hebrew, as I was studying it, the word Morah is the word for teacher. So in other words, this is where secularized polytheistic teachings were occurring in the name of religion. And he's at Mora. And there are Canaanites in the land. And notice it is at that time, in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram. It's called a theophany. It's at that time. In this contrary to God's will, God's word setting, when all the obstacles before him, Canaanites in the land, the Lord appears and says to your offspring, I'll give this land. And the word offspring slash seed is the very same word that was utilized in Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. And so when you connect now in that phrase, Christmas to Good Friday, what you and I likewise see here now is that God has got a Christmas slash Good Friday plan unfolding in front of you. And you're staring this thing down. Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Same word used, offspring. What does he do? So he built an altar there to the Lord. That is a testimony. That's a statement. He builds an altar to the Lord. In history, if you ever read about Christopher Columbus, what you will find that wherever he traveled and landed, he would plant a flag. He'd take possession of an island in the name of Spain, name it, and plant the Spanish flag. A historian writes Columbus never tired of planting his flags on the many islands that he would found. Abram is not planting a flag. Abram is building an altar. He is making a statement to the Canaanites of who the sovereign God is. And you begin to think through the entire promise strategy unfolding in front of all this here, and it takes your breath away. Because even this land is a statement of grace. Because as we'll explore next week, God, in chapter 15, verse 13, said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, be servants there, and so on and so forth. But then what happens is that Abram is given the promise, an eternal promise of the land. And God spells out the geography in 18 of chapter 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. And when you get to chapter 17, you realize that's an eternal promise. You tie all this together here now. And here is Abram not planting flags. Here is Abram building altars. 
at the time in which he's facing still another challenge. Now, are you willing to offer a testimony to God when you're facing one significant challenge? The Lord appeared to Abram, said to your offspring, same word as in Genesis 3.15, I'll give this land, that's grace. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, pitched his tent, Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And what does he do once again? Doesn't plant a flag. Builds an altar. Making a statement in a secularized setting. Maybe you have to do that with your co-workers. Called upon the name of the Lord. And off to the side, right in Genesis chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Because when Cain killed Abel, and the evil one thought he had cut off the seed of promise, God raised another one up called Seth. And to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, and at that time people began to do what? Call upon the what? Name of the Lord. And now you take the call on the name of the Lord of that passage. You see the contrariness of the constructionists of Babel, where they want to make a name for themselves. You see God in chapter 12, verse 2, promising Abram he will make a name for Abram. And now it all comes together here. An altar is built to the Lord, and he called upon the what? Name of the Lord. And so Abram journey done, still going to the Negev, despite the challenges. And that's why Ahondo lost his health, right side paralyzed, money gone, faith prevails. First John 5, 4, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. The Messiah is penned. The hallelujah course is at the center of it all. And as he would later say, I did think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. You put that together and you can see how this relates to modern day life. Let's stand together. Some of us are going through some tough preparation time. Some of us are wrestling with the Terra effect. Some have the Sarai effect. Some have the Ur effect. Some are dealing with the loss of life effect. Five times you respond with the blessing. There's grace. For the one that needs a lot of grace this morning, minister at the point of need, there's as much grace in the preparation of life as there is in the promise of life. It's all part of your plan. Use it now for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.